Parenting is hard. Few of us feel up to the task. The world is shifting, quickly and dramatically. All of us feel the changes affecting our families. The stress and pressure can be intense. We are here to help sort the good and the bad, provide insight and bring hope. Welcome to Brilliantly Brave Parenting. We're so glad you stopped by. Welcome to Brilliantly Brave Parenting. I am Pastor Brad Mathias here in the studio with Robert Beeson. Robert, we are neither brilliant nor brave. Neither, definitely not. Uh, But what's interesting is that over the last 99 episodes, because this is our hundred, yes, we have made quite a journey. It's been remarkable, actually, and I don't think there's a better way to kind of cap off the first hundred than with the person that we're talking to today. It is a full circle. It really is. Yeah, serendipitous, is that correct term? Uh, Sure, Brad. Would you know? Do you know what serendipitous means? I do. Okay. But don't. Let's, let's move on. Ah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I called you bluff. All right. So this is full circle in the sense that what began as a sort of a simple conversation and a person that we met, you and I, about 12 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, led to really the formation of an entire ministry, which was the Eyeshine Ministries and the Tween Gospel Alliance. We were at a um, studio here in Nashville with uh, someone that represented us, uh, name is Esther, and she said, I want you to meet someone that um, I think you'll really resonate with. He's one of my other authors, and um, and she was talking about George Barnes. so we got together. I'll never forget the day, and we sat at a table in the studio and had a conversation for an hour or two, and it really challenged us to take a look at the whys and how we measure, wh- what we measure, and um, it really clarified a lot of the things that we were doing with iShine for tweens at the time, which has turned into the Tween Gospel Alliance, which has turned into all kinds of things, including this podcast. So you're right, Brad. In many ways, all roads kind of lead back to that that clarity moment for us. It really does. And, you know, I I remember because our kids were pretty young. Then. Yeah. So you go back 12 years and, and our kids were right at... 13, 14, you know, the early right. teen years. And I remember being alarmed personally because what he what he was talking about in the books that he was writing at that time had to do with focusing on this age of 13 as sort of when beliefs form and settle in a and person. The cement dries. Yeah. And I, and I remember you and I both sort of being alarmed because yeah. we had 13, <laughs> 13 year olds in our house and we were right. like, oh my, like, yeah, and the other thing that you know that we really that really stuck out is the role of the parent is to disciple the children. It's not the church's job. It's not you know institutions' jobs. It is really and um, by in large part, a lot of parents have kind of stepped away from that role in their houses. And so anyway, we could just recite the stuff yeah, all day. I, but, I find myself chasing down the squirrel hole here yeah. pretty quick. But at the not end even of the sure day, what a squirrel hole is. Well, but, a squirrel hole is another idea, Robert. Okay. Yeah. So George Barna, you. My dear friend, welcome to Brilliantly Brave Parenting. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a, I guess it's an honor to be on your hundredth episode. It, it kind of is, uh, and, and you, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, there's some tribute involved, and so we will definitely get you some swag from uh, from the storehouse. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so George is uh, on the West Coast, and uh, I guess you're in Arizona now. Is that correct, or? Where, where no, I, I'm, I'm a professor at Arizona Christian University, but uh, I still live here in California. I commute there to when I'm going to teach or you know do the research activities that I'm engaged in. So still living on the central coast of California. Wow. 
I want to give everyone your bio just real fast because we have a young group of moms that are listening to this podcast. I want to make sure they know who you are and they know what you've done. So here we go. George was the founder and leader of both the Barna Group and American Culture and Faith. He's been the president of Metaformation, a research and communications company. And through those companies and entities, he's conducted groundbreaking research on worldview, cultural transformation, ministry applications, spiritual development, and politics. Uh, along the way, George has written more than 50 books, mostly addressing cultural and religious trends, leadership, spiritual development, and cultural transformation. They include New York Times bestsellers and award-winning books. His works have been translated in more than a dozen foreign languages. George, you are, in short, uh, a savant and uh, a renaissance man, if there ever was one. You know, it's funny because the way I heard it, you were telling people I was the other part of that. I was the idiot, not the savant. But, yeah. <laughs> well, but whatever. you know, yeah. what privately is said is supposed to be discreet. <laughs> Publicly, I support and encourage you. <laughs> All right. That's good. That's good. You know, I need a mentor. I think, the, I think the last time I saw him, Robert, you and I were in Manhattan at a Trump uh, evangelical meeting. I, I think so. That was the last, it was just before he was elected. It was the evangelical thing. That, that was, that was a while ago. Well, three, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was in 2016. Uh, yeah, we did that. We were trying to get evangelicals to pay attention to the election because yeah. most of them had decided that they were going to sit it out because they didn't like either candidate. And uh, what we were trying to do was to get them to recognize if you do that, then you've effectively handed the election to one of the candidates simply by not choosing either one. So, uh, th yeah, that turned out to be actually based on our research later on. We found that that was a turning point in the election. So it was an interesting meeting. It was it was fantastic to be in the room, and it was really interesting. And we don't need to go down the political road, but it was interesting. You know, by the time I got up to the hotel room, what Fox News was saying about what went on in the room that they weren't in was remarkable. It was just a real, it, I literally, I mean, that really changed the way I looked at all. I, I already was skeptical, but but that was that was a fascinating thing. So lately, George, what what have you been up to? I know that there, you've always got a lot on your plate, but uh, what are you really passionate about right now? Well, you know, I, I want to see American culture transform so that we once again become a country that is intent on on honoring and serving God. And we are moving farther and farther away from that with each passing day. But we've been working to try to bring together different individuals across the country who have, have that same desire and trying to get people to cooperate, you know, to, to work together, to be collaborative, to be strategic, to be intelligent in what we're doing. And my primary thrust in all of that is to get them to pay attention to what the facts are telling us. And and my interpretation of the facts right now is that we're not going to make any progress until we deal with the whole issue of worldview, because right now only 7% of American adults and fewer kids, of course, have a biblical worldview. Hmm. And therefore, the choices we're making are less and less likely to be influenced by scriptural principles. And I think that's critical for us to do. So worldview is where we start. And if we're really serious about that, then where we start doing that is with children, 
because my research has also shown that a person's worldview begins to form somewhere between 15 to 18 months of age and is almost fully formed by 13 years of age. In most cases, a person dies believing what they believed at the age of 13. So those first 13 years are absolutely paramount in this battle to try to figure out uh, how we're going to think and how we think is so critical because you do what you believe. So if you can influence people's core beliefs, the things they really believe, not just the things they say they believe, that they think other people think they should believe, but the things they really believe, if we can influence that, that ultimately changes behavior, and that's really where the rubber meets the road. So I uh, I've joined up with Arizona Christian University, uh, you know, working there. We've started something called the, the Cultural Research Center, and we're, you know, trying to do consistent studies, figuring out what's going on in our culture, in education, in family, in government, in churches, in uh, business, and, and so forth, you know, the seven mountains of cultural influence. And uh, so that, that's kind of what's keeping me busy, trying to, to get the people who have influence to use it not to make more money, not to be more popular, not to be more famous, but to try to figure out how can we move the country in a direction that will honor God, because that also, as it turns out, works out in our best interests. You know, one of the people that we talked to um, recently, George, was Dana Gresh, and she was sort of exploring how the departure from the biblical worldview has opened up a vacuum in the youth today where uh, depression and anxiety and suicidal uh, intent has sort of spiked in the last four years. Have you seen that in your research? Oh, of course. And, and you know, when, when we look at that, we try to trace it back and figure out, well, what does this do to? And there are all kinds of wacky explanations out there in the media. You know, oh, well, we're prescribing the wrong drugs. You know, we're, we're doing this, we're doing that. The reality is that it's a worldview issue. When you look at some of the more popular worldviews in America today that have replaced a biblical worldview, things like postmodernism or existentialism or Marxism, you know, there are a lot of them out there that people are drawing from. And one of the things that we discover is that kids are taking the principles taught in those worldviews to heart. And one of the principles there is, well, there is no real purpose in life. You know, all you all you want to try to do is to to have fun, have good experiences, be happy, enjoy relationships. That's the most you can really hope for. And really, if that's all you're living for is to make the most of the moment, yeah, that, that that wears thin pretty quickly. And in the kind of youth culture that we have today, that's driven by the arts and entertainment industry mm-hmm. that continually promotes these kinds of messages of hopelessness, I would say. Yeah, it's not surprising the kids are committing suicide. They're looking at the future and saying, why bother? Yeah. If that's all there is, if that's all I've got to live for, yeah, let's just pull the plug now. Wow. Uh, as you're describing that, you see the obsession in America, in particular, or Western culture. Uh, we're global now. So Western civilization is definitely obsessed with entertainment definitely seeking pleasure however you can find it, whether that's visually or chemically or 
sexually, there's just sort of this rising sort of flood of, of emotion. And our kids are sort of surfing the crest of that. And parents, I believe, can just retreat. I think when they see this kind of a cultural shift and they, they see the negative over and over, parents can just sort of give up and throw their hands in the air and in despair as well. What advice could, uh, or what advice would you give a parent who's about to raise their children into the teen years? Well, yeah, I, I think there are several things that are important. One is that, there, there are a handful, relative handful of influence entities that really determine what kids wind up thinking. The arts and entertainment media are the biggest factor of all, but family is mm-hmm. right up there with it. The family, particularly parents, still remain very potentially influential. Now, I use the word potentially because in order to have influence, you have to engage with somebody else. And so the issue here is, are we spending time with our kids, not watching television necessarily or listening to music or or doing that kind of stuff, but I mean, really interacting with them at a, an intellectual and a heart level so that we're reaching a place that matters to the, to the child. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is that if you're going to try to pass along life principles, life skills, life advice, then you've got to model it for the kids. You can't tell them, you know what, you're watching too much television, then you watch four hours of television a day. You can't tell them, well, you shouldn't see you know, movies with a lot of blood and guts or a lot of sex or a lot of violence or profanity. And then you go to those movies. I mean, you have to indicate to them that this is so important. It is so true that I commit myself to it. And so if you were to watch my life, you would see what it looks like. Because that's really what kids are going through. We found that there are two different stages during the early years in terms of worldview development. The first stage, which usually goes up through about age 12, 13, 14, is when kids are experimenting in life. They're trying to figure out how does life work? What do I really believe? Who do I want to be? What's my place and my role in the world going to be? And so they're trying to figure out the answers to all these questions. Usually by around 13, 14, 15, they've got most of the answers. And so at that stage, they transition to another phase of development, which is now they're trying to refine that worldview that they've developed. They're trying to to make sense of it so they can articulate it to others, so they can be more consistent with it in their moment-to-moment activity. They want to feel comfortable that they know who they are, and they're portraying themselves to the world in a way that fits with that view of themselves and their place in the world that they've created. So it's really important then that during this phase, we're helping kids to understand what does and doesn't work in terms of their worldview. If they make bad choices, we don't just want to criticize them for the choices. We want to dig a little bit deeper and figure out why they made the choice because chances are really good. It was triggered by a core belief. And so if that core belief is wrong as a parent, we have the opportunity still, hopefully, 
to interact with our kid because they still trust us. They know that we've got a lot more experience and we can understand things in a different way than they do. That can work both for and against us. But while we still have that relational connection and we still have that influence, which we'll lose a a few years after their teen years, we still want to take advantage of that influence and begin to think through with them, here's why I think you made that choice. I think it stems from this particular belief, which of course is coming from these particular programs or movies you watch or music you listen to or conversations you have online through social media or the kinds of celebrities that, that you put on the, you know, on, on the pedestal. And so it's okay for us to challenge that, not making them feel bad, but helping them mm-hmm. to learn how to analyze themselves. That's so good. I, I, I'm curious, kind of going back to, I think you said that the percentage of 7% of us have a, a biblical worldview. What in your studies and, and even just, just from your own like personal engagement, not just research, where do you think we've gone awry from having a worldview that is biblically based as adults? I'm not talking as kids because obviously we, we can't teach what we don't, we don't adopt ourselves. So well, I'm interested to know where, where you feel as a country or as just a general population, we've gotten away from a biblical worldview. Well, I think it began probably around 60 years ago when we were really experimenting with different ways of life, different ways of thinking, different ways of relating to each other. And so we found that churches stopped teaching about things like sin because it wasn't popular. Hmm. Uh, churches stop teaching the Bible, you know, verse by verse, exegetical kinds of teaching, and started to go into topical teaching, things that were more likely to attract a bigger audience. Mm. Churches began to gauge their success based on the numbers of people that they were attracting rather than the number of disciples who were committed to following Jesus. You know, so there were a lot of transitions that were happening at that time. And then you had, in some ways, a separation between the Christian world and, if you will, the secular world. And so suddenly you had a Christian music industry. You had people making, you know, Christian movies. You had people writing Christian books. Like a brand. Yeah. And it started to plant an idea in people's minds. Oh, there are options. I don't have to listen to music that glorifies God. I don't have to read books that help me to understand what God's principles could do in my life. You know, and all of these other kinds of media and products and conversations, suddenly there became this great divide that has gotten wider and wider over the years. And that's caused people to think, yeah, I'm a free moral agent. Hmm. I don't have to take advice from anybody. It's all up to me. And then you get the popularity of postmodernism coming in saying there is no such thing as absolute moral truth. There is no such thing as anybody being able to tell you that what you've done is right or wrong. You're the only one who knows that for you. And so you have all of these things building on each other. And before you know it, we're in this place where now most kids in America cannot get a biblical worldview within their household because today only 5% of the parents of children between the ages of 5 and 13 have a biblical worldview. 
And as you said, Robert, you know, you can't give what you don't have. And so with so few parents having that, they're not, not likely to get it at home. They're not likely to get it in our schools. I, I did a study last month, discovered that only 3% of children under the age of 13 today are in a schooling environment where they're likely to be exposed to the content of a biblical worldview. Wow. So, you know, we're moving farther and farther away rather than closer and closer to. So is, and I don't know, George, I... I remember hearing we spent some time in Dallas many years ago, and you were talking to me about the home church that you that you do it in you know where you live. If if I'm a member of that, and I don't know if you're continuing to do that, but let's just say that you are, and and I'm a parent, I'm like you know what, George, you're you're right. I I don't I I have these principles have eroded in my life. I just don't. Where do I start moving towards a biblical worldview? I mean, because it, it, honestly, I I feel like. From just being a parent standpoint, there's a lot of times I just feel like it's insurmountable, like I've gone so far. And so how would you counsel people that are in your small group, or, or in, in this case, the listeners, how do we start getting back to the, the place of having a biblical worldview so that we can you know, instill that in our kids? Yeah, that's a great and very practical question. It's really good. You know, one of the things that you want to do is take a, a hard look at, at the church that you're part of and figure out, are they really moving me toward having a more biblically pure worldview? Or are they just kind of teaching me to make me come back week after week? I mean, I I hate to say it in these kind of gross terms, but so often because that's how pastors are evaluated, you know, how many people are coming? How much money do we raise? How many programs do we have? How much square footage have we built out? You know, I mean, those things have nothing to do with what Jesus died for, but that that's the shortcut that so many churches, church leadership groups take to figuring out, is the pastor doing his or her job? And so as a, in, in counseling congregants, I would say, but you've got to take care of yourself. You have to know that someday you're going to stand before a holy and righteous God and give account for your life. So you got to think through, am I getting what I need to become more Christ-like? So I've got to look at my church. I've got to look at the schools to which I'm, or, or the educational process through which I'm putting my children. Is it, is it helping me to raise my kids to be Christ-like? Because ultimately it is the parent's responsibility. The parent needs to be the one who's leading the charge. The school and the church ought to be supporting the parent in that process, which then raises another issue about our churches, which is if you're attending a church that isn't really helping your children to develop a biblical worldview, it's the wrong church for you. I don't care how happy they are, how many of their friends are there, how great the games are, how funny the leaders are. The issue here is, are we molding them to have the mind and the heart of Christ? If we're not doing that, we're not doing what the church has been called to do. Wow. So, deep breath. Okay. That's good. It's so, that's... I, I remember now why well, I love George, because he just throws it down. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of information really fast. So, our parents right now are all pulled off the side of the road in the in the... <laughs> and they're they're the, crying. They're searching yeah. for razor blades. Yeah, they're head banging the steering wheel. Loose. <laughs> He's so right. Uh, the the reality is that we've been here before, right? There's a there's a there's a 
historical precedent in the sense that the Bible was written in the first century, roughly, uh, the New Testament, and that the culture that the Roman Empire, uh, the pagan culture of the day, was so strong that there were only, you know, 12 people that started this thing called Christianity. So I want to bring that pastoral perspective back, that the, the Bible itself was written at a time when there was severe... Wheels were off. Yeah. So this isn't the first time the culture has been eroded by the uh, influence of darkness. So, George is... Well, and, and also, I mean, that's a great point, Brad. Keep in mind that as you read human history, you read about revivals, you read about uh, yeah. all kinds of reformations and, and revivals and uh, reawakenings, because we go through these periods of time where we lose track of of why we're on the planet. You know, it's it's not to be successful; it's to be obedient, and 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 it's it, it's not to enjoy each other so much as it is to enjoy God. We can enjoy each other in the process of enjoying God, but we got to keep our priorities straight. We lose sense of our priorities sometimes for a lot of different reasons, bad leadership, you know, other things that happen, but ultimately it comes down to us. Each of us has to make the decisions. So it is possible to turn it around. And, and, and I think that in the next 40 years, I just returned, I I got home at midnight last night from speaking in a big event in Washington, DC with a lot of Christian leaders who are worried about the condition of the nation. And, and my message to them was, look, we can we can turn this around through the empowerment and the guidance of the Holy Spirit if we're willing to do so. And we recognize we didn't get in this mess overnight, and we're not going to turn it around overnight. Hmm. It's, culturally speaking, it's going to be about a 40-year process if we get serious and get busy today. And we allow God to lead us, and we not think that we have all the answers. So, yeah, I mean, we, we can do this. And I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I'm— I'm just marveling at how our our studies and research are backing up age-old assumptions that the Bible's made. Things like, mm-hmm. you know, the age of uh, accountability is around 13, based on <laughs> thousands of years of church history, you know, confirmations and, sure. and that yep. sort of thing. Uh, and that's what our modern research is backing up. And then this idea of a generation being 40 years, you know, in Scripture— this idea that most, you know, historical accounts of the Old Testament would show these 40-year cycles in the nation of Israel as they sort of learned their lessons, sort of changed their ways. And Robert was just mentioning, you know, Joshua and Caleb's story of the Exodus where, you know, these two guys, they see the promised land and they claim it, they believe it, they've got faith and, and no one else does. Mm-hmm. And so they have to wait 40 years to step into the promise that God had made. Even though they've seen it. Even though they've seen it, yeah. Yeah. And so I can't help but marvel at how exact those numbers turn out to be in our modern calculus. So that's very cool. It it is. And, you know, again, when we look at, all right, so how do we practically do this? We've got to look at, well, who has influence on our kids? We know the government has influence. Say, how does the government influence our kids? Well, number one, it runs the public schools, which become indoctrination factories. But number two, it passes laws. And people say, well, you know, you can't legislate morality. The truth of the matter is that's all the law does. Mm. The law codifies the morals of a nation. Because what it does is it it says, this is the law. 
If you break it, we're going to penalize you because you've done bad. If you if you adhere to it, we're going to reward you. We'll give you freedom. We'll give you whatever it may be because you paid attention and you worked within those boundaries. So the law sends a huge message to our kids of what's right and wrong. So whether we're talking about uh, you know what is marriage or any of the other big issues of the day related, you know, poverty, immigration, crime. I mean, all these things, the law speaks to that. And our kids are always told, make sure you obey the law. So government is a big influence. We've got to figure out how do we work within that framework. Parenting, of course, as I've mentioned, that's a big deal. Parents have so much influence, they've got to use it wisely. You can't fight every battle. You got to pick your fights and know what your strategy is going to be. Thirdly, the media, as I mentioned before, is, is the other one of the big three in terms of influence. And there I'd say that parents, again, can have a huge impact on their kids by looking at the media, the arts and entertainment media that their kids are ingesting and doing four things. First of all, you want to minimize it. Secondly, you want to monitor it. Thirdly, you want to mediate it. Fourthly, you want to moralize it. So minimize meaning right now, kids in their teens are absorbing eight to 10 hours of media messages per day. That's more than anything else they do other than perhaps sleep. You know, so we, we've got to put some limits on how much we're going to let them absorb. Secondly, we've got to monitor it. We have to know what it is they're absorbing and have some boundaries that we've established and that we're accountable for there. Mediate it, the third function. That means that you've got to know that content that your kids are, are ingesting and be able to interact with them about it. Help them to know what the implications are of what that program, what that music, what that social media site just told them was the truth. You know, on the internet, there's no such thing as truth. So we've got to come in and help them to understand truth does exist in spite of the internet, in spite of Hollywood, in spite of New York. And we've got to be the mediator there to help them understand what truth looks like in this culture. And fourthly, that means that we've got to moralize the content as well. Morals meaning knowing the difference between right and wrong. We've got to help our kids have a healthy set of boundaries related to right and wrong. They're not going to get that at school. They're not going to get it on television. They're not going to get it from their friends. We've got to be the ones who are delivering them uh, that, that set of boundaries and then holding them accountable for it. That's really good. And that's, uh, you gave us just so much to digest there, George. Um, as always, it's like Brad said, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. And I so appreciate you um, kind of putting a pin point on a lot of these things yeah. that, you know, we talk about and we meander and you are able to clarify. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Robert, it's a whole lot more yourself. fun to meander. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but it's helpful to have a clarified. You know, George, what I love about you is you have the ability to take very complex, overwhelming concepts and strip them down to their core essentials. What is it that's really going on here? And you just did it. You took 25 minutes and you broke down why our culture is literally going to hell. And now the hard work. We've got to do this. 
I'm, I'm sorry. What is it you want me to do now? <laughs> I'm laughing. I never think of myself as doing anything particularly helpful, but no, no, I no. Hope now it it's up to us to, think, to take these well, things. Yeah. In. I mean, cause it really, it starts, it starts in our four walls at our house and then, it, you know, in our schools and in our, like our, our spheres of influence. And, and, uh, but also, I mean, ultimately it starts with us getting, I'm glad that you, you know, really looking at what are we putting into our lives as adults and are we getting biblical truths? Are we just trying to feel better? You know, I, was it who was it? Francis Chan? I think they said, you know, we need more physical trainers and not massage therapists as pastors. And I think that that's exactly exactly the point is that we need to make sure we're being challenged. Well, and and one of the things that I didn't actually answer before that you brought up had to do with that whole house church concept that we we've had. Yeah, and, and the whole reason for that, we left a conventional church setting with a bunch of other families. Because we couldn't find a church locally that was really taking care of our kids. I mean, that, that you know, they had the safety regulations. They had the curriculum that they bought from the big publishing houses. They did all that stuff. They played guitar with them. But what we wanted was was for our kids to to really know Christ deeply, intimately, and passionately. And you can't get there unless you're constantly studying the Bible, understanding what it looks like in practice. So we started the house church saying, okay, all of us parents, we are the pastors here. And we're doing this gathering every week or twice a week sometimes, primarily for our kids. It's not for us. We had our chance. By and large, my research shows adults don't change. Mm. You are who you are. But, you know, fortunately, we were able to come together with a, a, another group of parents who love Christ, are trying to serve Christ with their lives as best they can, no matter what kind of vocation they have. But we want our kids to grow up to honor him as well. And, and so being able to find those kinds of relationships with other people, we talked before about church, we talked about media, but relationships are a key thing too. Mm. Who do you hang out with? Because that's going to affect you, and it's going to affect your family. And if you can hang out with other people who really care about these things, break some of the social expectations. You don't have to go to a conventional church. The conventional church is not in the Bible. I mean, you can go there. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But if it's not meeting the needs of drawing you and your kids closer to Christ, then you've got to come up with an alternative. I love that. Wow. So. We're out of time. My producer is waving his hands over his head and dancing a little bit in the corner. No, 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 no. He's, he said, I found the razor blade. I found the <laughs> razor blade. It's time, time. You know, uh, George, as usual, you give us a lot to think about and a lot to process. And for the parent who's aware or the parent who's becoming aware, uh, this is a very valuable episode. It's something to come back to maybe and listen to a few times. Uh, maybe sit down with your pastor and uh, youth leader and talk about this and find out what is it that could be shifted in our focus at church or in our home group. Um, I am so grateful you made the time to spend it uh, with us on our 100th episode. Yeah, thank you, George, for being here. It's an honor to know you, and I just uh, every time we talk, I just I feel enriched, and uh, so I'm grateful for you and your friendship and and all that you do. Well, you guys know I love you. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, you, you know, trying to help families, trying to raise up godly kids. 
what else would you want to devote your life to? That's a great thing. And, and thank you for doing these podcasts. And I pray that they reach an ever widening audience. Thank you, George. We'll talk to you soon. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Congratulations, Brilliantly Brave Parenting. 100 episodes. What an amazing feat. And not only that, you're blessing families all around the country. Keep up the good work. God bless from the Pray For Me campaign. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Deb Waterbury. I am the author of We Are Mother Abraham. And I would like to just give a little shout out and a congratulations to Brad Melanie of Brilliantly Brave Podcast on their 100th episode. Congratulations, y'all. This is a great great podcast and um i appreciate everything you're doing god bless you hey this is brian harden from daily audio bible and i just want to congratulate brilliantly brave on their 100 episodes that is a feat and i know it and i am so grateful for the faithfulness to this incredibly difficult topic that so deeply needs to be talked about Hi, y'all. I'm Emma Mae Jenkins, and I just wanted to give the Brilliantly Brave Parenting a big shout-out to their 100th 100, show. Y'all, this is so incredible, and y'all are doing nothing but blessing people and equipping people with truth, and I just love you. Hey, Robert and Pastor Brad, I just wanted to say congrats on 100 episodes of your podcast. Sue and I had a great time when we were with you guys And I just really appreciate what you do. Keep encouraging and equipping parents to raise healthy children. You guys are awesome. God bless you. Congratulations again. Hey, Robert. Hey, Brad. Just wanted to congratulate you on your 100th episode. After being on episode 23, it seems like forever ago. And you guys have just been blessing people, encouraging people, and... um, creating great stuff for a very long time. So congratulations, and it was an honor to partner with you. 100th episode was a doozy. That was the way to do it. I think so. It reminds me of why we got excited about it in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. And every time we talk to them, it's the same like, oh yeah, that's why I'm so fired up about this. Oh yeah, our kids are going to hell. That's right. You know, there's a... You know, there's an urgency that comes from George, and he's been preaching, writing, talking about this for better part of four decades. And all all the wisdom, I'm so glad he ended the way he did, because, you know, we can talk about media, we can talk about our parenting styles, we can talk about schools, about government, but at the end of the day, this is a relationship game. I mean, even Jesus with his disciples, it wasn't... They were doing life together. It was relational, and um, we've gotten away from that, and... I'm glad that he ended there because like we talk about a lot, we live in a transactional society. Like if, if we just do this and this, and if we do this and this, instead of like, let's just, if we do life with one another, including our kids, not they go to children's church or whatever, but if we're like, they see us adopting the principles of Jesus and following Jesus and doing with other adults, it's impossible for them not to be affected by that. And so I'm glad that he landed the plane there because we can get so intellectual and so, oh yeah, that makes sense. And now let's check off all these lists. But at the end of the day, I mean, we need to make sure our relationship is right with Christ ourselves and then focus on our relational walking with each other. Well, uh, my takeaway, I, I guess, was to remember that 60 years ago, the church sort of shifted its message. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that there was a pulling back from 
some of the severity of scripture. He said something that I found interesting. It's going to, I mean, I have to think about this, but he said, we went to a topically based program instead of a biblically based program. And I think that's, that's really dead on the money. Like you think about sermon series, you think even podcasts and I, you know, for solo parent, what we do, we take topics and stuff and and there's value to it. But as far as disciple making, I don't know that that's, you know, I think that like, like he said, and what you're saying 60 years ago, we started making a shift towards that and, and also becoming a brand Christianity, becoming a brand, whether it be Christian music or books or, you know, t-shirts. Yeah, that separation Coffee, uh, between the secular and the Christian, it's, it, you know, it's hard to think about that because it, I've never known a time when that wasn't right. sort of separated. We've, yeah, we're native to it. Uh, but before our generation, so back before the 60s, you know, people just had a moral compass and it wasn't considered Christian or not Christian. Right. It was a part of the fabric of their life. Mm. So what we're saying is you and I coming out of the media world, we're responsible for creating this mess. Pretty much. It's humbling, but I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. I think there is too. And I you know, may all of us as parents, instead of dwelling on the I guess the empty or the negative part of this, it it's good to sort of recommit ourselves now to the basics of our faith. Mm. Prayer, reading scripture, um, spending time with our kids. If you did those three things, you could probably radically transform this and trend. incorporate all those things. Yeah. Prayer, the word, and time. Like yeah. it's not, they're not segregated things. I no, mean, it's all they part become of your a life. part of your life. Yeah, yeah. and it, it doesn't have to be a new book, and it doesn't have to be a new study, and it doesn't have to be a new church. It just means that you, wherever you're at, with whatever you have, you begin to say, mm-hmm. "I'm going to make intentional effort to include these things in my daily behaviors." That's right. Well, we're so grateful to George, as always, for being with us, especially on this 100th episode. And like we said at the beginning, I mean, honestly, I don't know that we would be sitting here doing what we're we doing yeah. if, if it weren't for his influence on our lives personally and and professionally, if that's if I, what we do is professional. I, I will go a step further and say the things that we've done in the last decade would not have happened if it hadn't been for this man and his work. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I, I, there's, there's a catalyst point that I can remember with clarity and conviction. It was George Barna talking to us, and then we were at the Billy Graham uh, Association. Yeah. And we had some- The Twin Gospel Alliance. Yeah, we had these conversations with some of the greatest influencers and thought leaders in our our culture. And and there was a a spirit of God that moved among us that said, you need to get on this. Yeah. You need to get this in your- in your uh, priority list. and 100% agree. And then God did it. So uh, from that time, with God's help, we believe that this trend can be reversed and will be, and another great awakening will occur. We thank you guys for spending a little time with us today, and uh, we'll look forward to spending time with you again next week. Appreciate you being here. God bless you guys. Bye-bye. Be encouraged, parents. You are not alone. In Paul's letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, he writes, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Brilliantly Brave Parenting wants to be an encouragement and support that parents can rely on. Would you consider liking us and sharing us with a friend? As a part of the Tween Gospel Alliance, we are a nonprofit organization dependent on the support of friends like you. Thanks for stopping by. We'll be right here next week.
Brad, you know I'm a foodie, right? Absolutely. Okay, I want to tell you about this awesome coffee experience. It's called CJ's Coffee Culture and Community. It is a faith-run coffee culture. And the thing that's really cool about this is that they roast their own beans, they have delicious coffees, and they, they have two brick and mortar, so two coffee bars, as well as a virtual location at cjscoffeecafe.com. Here's the cool thing. They ship their beans, they ship their coffee anywhere in the world, so you don't just have to be in Texas to enjoy it. CJ's Coffee Culture and Community. Awesome. Awesome.